Lift every voice and sing. Let freedom ring. So goes the voice of Melba Moore, Dionne Warwick, Stevie Wonder, the Clark Sisters, Freddie Jackson, Howard Hewitt, Take Six, Stephanie Mills, B.B. and C.C. Buenas, and Jeffrey Osborne. We here at Solutions of Balance and our guest today, Barry Craig, also believe we should all be singing about and demanding freedom. Freedom for all, regardless of race, creed, or color. So welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. And you are listening to Solutions to Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host, Jamie McMillan, who's currently on sabbatical. And our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is author, television producer, and Professor Emeritus Barry Craig. Barry Craig of Mayfield, Kentucky, is a professor of history, retired now at Kentucky Wesleyan Community and Technical College in Paducah, Kentucky. Barry Craig holds a master's degree in history and a master's degree in journalism from Murray State University and is author of seven books, including Kentuckians and Pearl Harbor, Hidden History of Kentucky, and True Tales, Kentucky Politics, Bombast, Bourbon, and Burgoo. Barry Craig also co-authored two more books. He also produces Barry Craig's Notebook, a local TV talk show that airs on a Paducah network. Barry Craig, welcome to Solutions of Violence. Thank you for having me. And All by right. for Professor Emeritus means old retired geezer, just a fancy word. Okay. All right. We appreciate that. So, Barry Craig, you are now, as you just pointed out, a retired history professor, West Kentucky Community and Technical College, Paducah, right. Kentucky. So you taught Kentucky history, American history. What brand of history? Tell us about that teaching and history in a college surrounded by conservative politics in Western Kentucky. My main field of study was American history at Murray State. But when I went to the community college, I did teach American history mostly. Also taught history of Kentucky and Western civilization. While Western Kentucky is indeed deeply conservative, I call it Trumpistan, it is arguably the most conservative corner of Kentucky. I was never restricted as to what I taught and how I taught. My job was not to teach students what to think. My job was to teach students how to think and that's to think critically. And I hope I, I, I succeeded in doing that in the 24 years I spent in the classroom. Okay. But I assume you had complete freedom to teach that history the way you understood that history. So no administrator and certainly not the state government interfered with your teaching strategy. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Yes. So currently two Republicans, Joe Fisher and Matt Luckett, have pre-filed bills BR-60 and BR-69 in the Kentucky State Legislature. As the University of Louisville Law Professor Cedric Powell explains, BR-60 and BR-69 are designed to impede the teaching of African-American history and the teaching of Native American history in our public schools, colleges, and universities. BR-60 and BR-69 are also intended to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement. Tell us, from a history professor's perspective, if these two bills become law, what kind of problems will they create for history professors? And will the laws have a detrimental effect on the acquisition of knowledge for college and university students? Yes. And I might also add that Professor Powell is correct. 
Uh, so is my good friend, Professor Brian Clardy of Murray State, history professor. And he says these bills are designed to, quote, sanitize and pasteurize American history. In other words, make history dead white guy history only. Now, sanitizing and pasteurizing history is typical of countries with authoritarian governments, not democracies. Authoritarian history is supposed to help glorify the country whose past is to be presented as one glorious triumph after another. The country is always in the right and never wrong. I would always begin my history classes, be it American, Kentucky, or Western Civ, by telling my students, you're not going to get just dead white guy history. And they didn't either. These bills that you referred to reflect the right-wing wig out over critical race theory. Now, if I may, I'd like to quote from Elizabeth Krauss' Career Journal op-ed on this topic. Critical race theory has recently become a buzzword used as a catch-all to refer to racial equity efforts being implemented in schools. That is not quite what it actually is. She defines CRT as, quote, a theoretical framework that examines how institutions may perpetuate systemic racism in the United States. It holds that racism is real and is ingrained in systems like the legal system or public schools to the different people of color and the benefit of white people. CRT, as you know, is a legal construct in law. It is not, it is not, it is not taught in elementary schools or high schools. Uh, it is primarily in, in graduate schools, law schools. And then Kraut said, and I thought this was for really the, 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 the real crux of her argument. She said the flood of these anti-CRT bills represents a pushback, quote, against conversations about systemic racism, white privilege, and critical race theory in K-12 classrooms, often calling such topics divisive or alleging districts are indoctrinating children. The wave of legislation comes as school districts are seeking to rectify the root causes of racial disparities in student outcomes and make history curriculum more accurate and inclusive. And of course, you would add to that anything other than straight Protestant white guy history. That's what they are wigged out about. Okay. So American history is evidenced by the fact that Kentucky core content social studies standards hardly mention Native American or African American history. It's taught in our public schools from an American exceptionalism perspective, as you have explained, the bad and the ugly, often whitewashed, are omitted altogether. But you believe it is important to teach the history that documents U.S. mistakes and tragedies, as well as our accomplishments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Spanish philosopher George Santayana supposedly said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And Winston Churchill wrote, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Let's go back to the end of World War II when uh, Germany was reorganized. West Germany, their public education system fully and completely recognized the evils of Nazism. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't uh, sugarcoat it. They didn't gloss over it. They told it. And today, what's the result? Germany, reunited Germany, is a democracy. You, you really have got to tell people in the first place, it's, it's like Santiana said and Churchill said, if you don't learn from the past, you're going to meet, you're going to repeat these mistakes. Uh, I was, before I was a history professor, I was a journalist. And while we all have our biases, let's be frank, we all do. I always 
told myself when I was writing straight news pieces, not opinion pieces, not analysis pieces, but straight news pieces, stick to the facts, follow the facts, give the reader everything the reader deserves, which is the truth. History should be taught that way too. In the first place, is anybody perfect? I guess if you're a Christian, you believe Jesus was, but I'm no Jesus and neither are my students, neither is anybody else. Give people the, have, have faith. See, these Republicans, the Republic, they have no faith in Kentuckians. They believe that Kentuckians should be given this propagandized verse of history. Well, put it all out there and let people decide for themselves. I did a column in the Courier Journal a while back talking about this critical race theory. And uh, one of the things that they want to try to sanitize is the Civil War. And so I talked to a fellow with the uh, Texas Education Association about this. And I said, look, just quote the Confederates, just quote them, put it right out there and let the people decide. Uh, I would also recommend to your viewers, if you, the best little volume on the Civil War is Charles Dew's book called Apostles of Disunion. And Dew studied these, these con- early in the Civil War, when the lower South seceded, these states sent commissioners into the upper South to try to convince them to secede from the Union, including in Kentucky. What do you suppose their argument was? If you don't secede, you're going to lose your slaves. And if slaves are freed, what's going to happen? You can guess, can't you? They're going to marry your daughters. They're going to take your jobs. They're going to sit on juries. They're going to vote. All this white supremacist stuff, it is right there. I did a book on Kentucky's Confederate press. I quoted them. Read the Louisville Courier, the Frankfurt Yeoman, the Lexington Statesman, all these pro-Confederate papers. What is their argument? If you do not secede, you will lose your slaves and they will become your equals. So my advice to the students or to teachers who are kind of, they, well, what, can I, what about that? Just quote them. You don't need any editorial comment. Could you say, this is what the Louisville Courier said. This is what these commissioners said. Just quote the Confederates and let people decide. They're afraid of that. They don't want people to see that because they know. They have no faith. And I do. I have faith in people. They who? You kept saying they are afraid of that? They are. Who are they? Uh, the, the powers that be. Well, I mean, they, well, let's be very frank. The Republican Party is what the Democrats used to be. The whites, they're the party of the white people. They want America to be white history. And so, yeah, it, it's they, these Republicans. They want to propagandize it. And the sad thing, what this, I'm afraid going to happen is a lot of really good teachers are going to say to hell with this and do something else. And uh, that's, that's, this is, this is, it, it, we're really in a dangerous, we talk about that more later, but the United States is, is, is in, a, we are at a crossroads, a very dangerous crossroads. Yeah, I've got a question on it. So let's, let's go from here. Sure. Professor Barry Craig, you, you oppose these two bills. So there is currently a petition circulating among college and university professors. The Zen petition, the Zen petition named after the historian Howard Zen, states that signatories will teach Native American, African American history, the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement, regardless of any law passed by the state of Kentucky. Would you sign that petition? Why? I already have. Uh, well, you already I, have. I did. I signed it this morning, as a matter of fact, and the last part on it, it says, why did you sign it? And uh, the pledge begins, lawmakers 
in at least 27 states are attempting to pass legislation that would require teachers to lie to students about the role of racism, sexism, heterosexism, and oppression throughout U.S. history. I sign it because Kentucky is one of those states. Plus the fact I'm a huge Howard Zinn fan of People's History of the United States. I have a copy that is well-thumbed, it's dog-eared, it's underlined. Howard Zinn's a fascinating guy. He really is. And for those who think that these liberals are a bunch of wimps, Howard Zinn was a bombardier in World War II. He flew in a B-17. And of course, I always tickled me about, they were talking about what a, what a wimp George McGovern was. Yeah. George McGovern was a bomber pilot, won a distinguished flying cross. And so, uh, uh, but anyway, no, Howard Zinn's a tremendous, I, I recommend a people's history to your listeners, to anyone else. I recommend it to my students for outside reading, to my union brothers and sisters. It is a terrific, terrific book. It is well-researched and well-written. So you've written seven history books, two of them, Hidden History of Kentucky and True Tales Kentucky Politics, Bombast, Bourbon, and Burgue, that demonstrate that you know a lot about Kentucky politics. Kentucky was once a blue state, up until the Republican Louis B. Nunn was elected governor in 1967. Kentucky governors were almost all Democrats. Wally Workerson changed up from a Republican to a Democrat because he knew he couldn't get elected as a Republican. Most of the Kentucky U.S. senators from 1859 through 1985 were Democrats. The majority of folks mining in eastern Kentucky towns and farmers in western Kentucky were Democrats. But all that has changed in the late 1980s. With the exception of Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky is solidly a red Republican state. What happened here, Barry Craig? That's a very, very good question, and one that will require maybe a more extensive answer than you're looking for. But if you want to call time on me, that's okay. Go ahead. By the way, I will also appreciate your pronunciation of Burgoo. It is pronounced Burgoo, unless you're some kind of hoity-toity, highfalutin person. It's Burgoo, which is more French, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, um, actually, what we have in Kentucky is more of a change in party label than political philosophy. Going back, way back in the history of Kentucky, Kentucky has always been a conservative state. Kentucky was a slave state, as you probably know. Kentucky did not join the Confederacy, as you probably know. It was a loyal state a loyal slave state. A lot more Kentuckians put on Union blue uh, than Confederate gray. In fact, the only section of the state that was Confederate majority was down here in the Jackson Purchase and in Trigg County, where your family comes from. Kentucky, by the way, furnished more African-American soldiers to the Union forces than any state except Louisiana. But like all Kentucky Confederates, like all Kentucky Confederates, Almost all Kentucky Unionists were pro-slavery white supremacists. They believed in the Union and slavery. Now, a lot of my students could not figure that out. That, that just didn't compute. It, it's not consistent. But whoever said Kentucky, Kentuckians were consistent anyway. But it, it seems to make no sense. And, and, and on the surface, it doesn't make sense. But that's the way Kentuckians were. They thought the Union Party in Kentucky, which is dominant, thought that we will stay loyal. And as a reward for our loyalty, we'll get to keep our slaves. The rebels are going to lose this war and they're going to lose their slaves. Because Kentucky didn't secede, Kentucky was not subject to Reconstruction after the war, the process of, of bringing these Confederate, 11 Confederate states back into the Union fold. And so the Union Democrat, the conservative Union Democratic Party dominated Kentucky throughout the war. And after the war, 
Democratic majority white supremacists rule the roost, political roost in Kentucky. Kentucky refused to ratify the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, the 14th Amendment, which made African-American citizens, and the 15th Amendment, which put the ballot in the hands of black men. By the time the 13th Amendment was, was in the process of being ratified, there were only two states left in the Union that still had slavery. One was Delaware. Can you guess what the other one was? It was Kentucky. Now, Kentucky was part of the Jim Crow Democratic Solid South. I'll be 72 on December the 7th, and I can remember this, the, the, the tail end of this period. Segregation was rigid in Kentucky. Everywhere in Kentucky you went, you were governed by signs, signs that said white and signs that said colored. My, I used to really bore in on this with my students in Kentucky history classes and my American history classes, because we're talking about as late as the 1960s, 1970s, not 1860s, not 1870s. Segregation was rigid everywhere, even in Louisville, even in Lexington. Neighborhoods were segregated. Churches were segregated. Cemeteries were segregated. Uh, bus, bus station waiting rooms were segregated. Train station waiting rooms were segregated. Restaurants were segregated. If you're African-American, you, you couldn't get a meal in a restaurant. You had to eat it in the, in the kitchen or do takeouts. I remember in 1964, my grandmother was dying. My brother and I were in the hospital visiting with her, and we decided after a bit to, she was going to take a nap, and we decided to explore the hospital. So being kids, we just kind of wandered hither and yon and started, and we were on the elevator and rolled the elevator down to the basement. The basement door opened up, and guess what we saw? A whole room full of black people. That was the quote-unquote colored ward of Mayfield High School. If you remember the movie Driving Miss Daisy, when Hoke has to, has to urinate, he goes behind a billboard. Why didn't he go to a service station? You know why he couldn't, because toilets were segregated. Uh, drinking fountains were segregated uh, uh, in Paducah where I taught for years, uh, the Paducah Street Department had a, had a drink box. Now, you got to be old to remember what a drink box was, but it was a, a, a metal box that had cold drinks in it. And one half the box was painted white, one half was painted black. So if you were black, you couldn't get a Coca-Cola out of the white end of the box. You could not try on clothing or shoes in stores in Paducah or anywhere else. When desegregation finally came, one bank in Paducah, they were so angry, they just shut their fountain down. In the courthouses uh, in, in Jefferson County, too, I guarantee you, there were four toilets, white men, white women, colored men, colored women. That was the reality. Now, Kentucky did not disenfranchise African-Americans. Simple reason these white Democrats thought, what's it doesn't make any difference. There are enough of them to matter. But that was the reality of life. And again, I stress this to my students. This is recent history. This is 1960s, 1970s is when this was going on. I lived in an all-white neighborhood. Uh, working class neighborhood, I never physically came in contact with an African-American kid until I was about 12, 13 years old. The guy who picked up our trash, African-American, brought his son with him one day. And so, uh, and the guy actually literally had a mule drawn wagon with car tires on it. Anyway, and so uh, this this young fellow, we, we played together. We, we picked the ball around and I showed him my new Bell telephone toy truck. But the real poignant story that I never have forgotten was uh, the schools in Mayfield were, were uh, desegregated about the time I was in seventh, eighth grade. And uh, I remember meeting this uh, black kid. And the first thing that you 
usually ask another kid is, where's your daddy work? So I asked, he asked me, so where's your daddy work? I said, he works at General Tire, the plant here in town. And I said, well, where's your daddy work? He said, my daddy's a Presbyterian preacher. I said, a what? He said, a Presbyterian preacher. I said, where? He said, here in Mayfield. Well, I grew up in the Presbyterian church in Mayfield. It was all white. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. All this stuff you learned in Sunday school about God loves us all the same. Obviously, there were some Presbyterians who weren't welcome in my church. I never forgot that. I also remember growing up in the Presbyterian church. There was a picture of Jesus on the wall. I call him the Belgian Jesus. He has green eyes and light brown hair. He looks like a Belgian. Robert G. Ingersoll, the great agnostic of the late 19th century and a Republican, by the way, said that when we create our gods, they're in our image. And what more represented the image of the Mayfield Presbyterian Church than this Jesus who has green eyes and light brown hair? That had a profound effect on me that lasts to this day. I, I don't know what became of this young fellow. He doesn't live in Mayfield anymore. But I'd love to just tell him, do you have any idea? You probably don't. How profound that one conversation I had. He wouldn't remember it probably, but I never forgot it. Anyway. Uh, so the New Deal, and you mentioned the, the East, Western Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky, the coal mines, the, the, the UMWA comes in. The New Deal was a godsend to so many people in, in, in Kentucky and nationally. Uh, my grandfather was a union carpenter, painter, couldn't find work, went to work for the WPA cleaning up Paducah after the 1937 flood. The Civilian Conservation Corps built state parks, national parks all across the country, uh, WPA built roads, bridges, high, uh, airports, schools, uh, a tremendous, tremendous program of putting people back to work. And that really solidified a lot of farmers were very strongly pro New Deal because of price supports. All that came in with Roosevelt. And in the 1960s, the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, becomes what the Republicans started out to be, the party of civil rights activism. So here comes LBJ, a Texan, and these Northern and Western Democrats, and they're championing these, these landmark civil rights laws, which have been hailed as a second Reconstruction, because after Reconstruction was over, when the Northern Republicans turned their backs on the freedmen and the freed women, what did these, what did these Southern legislatures do? They passed laws disenfranchising African-Americans. And the Supreme Court, a Yankee Republican Supreme Court, upheld that in Plessy versus Ferguson. So the South begins to, the white South, with Nixon's Southern strategy, and you remember that well, begins to turn Republican. All these, 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 and this Southern strategy was calculated to win over these erstwhile white supremacist Southern Democrats to make Republicans out of them. And the Republicans became the party of states' rights, which meant in the old days, the right of states to have slaves and the right of slaves to Jim Crow African-Americans. And I often wonder, Lincoln surely was just spinning in his grave, just 8,000 RPM, this, because the, this, the parties are going to shift, this dramatic shift. So, And you look at Strom Thurmond, Senator Strom Thurmond, who ran as a Dixiecrat in 1948, president. Yeah, yeah. He becomes a Republican. So does Jesse Helms. So do all these Southern Democrats. Now, Kentucky, because Kentucky is a border state, it took a little bit longer for that Southern strategy to percolate upwards into the border states. But it did. 1968, when Wallace ran for president, he carried some Kentucky counties. He carried uh, Hickman County, Fulton County, which is near me. 
He carried uh, Todd County, which is near Trigg. George he, Wallace. That's right. George Wallace did. And he also carried Christian County and he carried Bullet County. Now, that should Bullet County shouldn't surprise you because Louisville, that would be a George Wallace County. But, uh, but again, it, it, even so, Nixon wins the state. And then along comes Ronald Reagan. Who, where does he open his campaign for president? In Neshoba County, Mississippi, where those civil rights workers were murdered. And what does Ronald Reagan tell this all-white, rebel flag-waving crowd? I believe in states' rights. And they got that. They knew exactly what it meant by that. That's the old Southern code word for slavery and Jim Crow. And so the, yeah, absolutely. And, the, and that's good you mentioned that because Reagan turns the dog whistle into a bullhorn. Uh, it's no more dog whistle politics. This is just flat race baiting uh, that the Republicans are, are up to today. And so now Kentucky begins to transition into uh, into this bright red state. Uh, Trump carried this state with, uh, I think it was 63% of the vote. He carried the state even wider margin, uh, just about the same margin the second time around. He carried several counties in Kentucky by better than 80%. And let's not kid ourselves. What this is all about is race. Ronald Reagan started the dog whistle, as you said. Now we're in the bullhorn. The Kentucky is, what, 88% white? And these white folks, they love Donald Trump because he hates who they hate. Not just minorities, of course. D Donald Trump ran a campaign in which he raced up and down. He raced baits. Not only that, he, he panders to, to, to nativism, to xenophobia, to homophobia, misogyny, sexism, religious bigotry, it's all in his playbook. And that's what this is all about. And by the way, it's not poor whites that elected Donald Trump. It's middle-class whites, lower middle-class. Look, look at the demographics, all oh, these blue-collar whites. No, no. His biggest base was these uh, lower middle-class whites, and of course, rich whites as well. And that's where we are now. So Kentucky now is... Uh, I dare say the great majority of Kentucky County judge executives are Republicans. The legislature is 75, 25 Republican. The Senate is 30 to eight Republican. We have one, one Democrat in Washington. God, God love him, John Yarmouth. Oh, I'm so sorry to see him go, but he is going. I guess that's okay if he wants to, but I wish he wouldn't too late now. Uh, you know, these five Republican Congress, and then you've got Mitch and, and Rand Paul. And you know, one thing I'd like to do now, I don't know if your, your, your program gets out beyond the bounds of Kentucky, but I would like to apologize profusely for Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul and these five congressmen, including the complete ass Thomas Massey with his gun-toting Christmas card. That's perverse beyond belief, but be that as Hold it on may. To that. I got a question about that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Barry Craig, let's, let's get back to the 21st century here. Sure. All right. The Kentucky State Legislature is currently in the process of redrawing district lines. The process is supposed to be guided by the U.S. Census data. With the super Republican majority in Frankfurt, that's probably not going to happen. The Republicans are going to redraw those district boundaries in a way that supports their reelection. Republicans like Speaker of the House Steve Thivers claims that well, they have the right to gerrymand the boundaries because, well, the Democrats, they did the same thing when they were in power. So does Stivers have a point here? What's the fair thing to do in terms of redrawing political district lines? Why? Well, when I was a kid, I was taught that two wrongs don't make a right. 
And just because you've got the power to do this doesn't make it right. Under the Constitution, under state constitutions, districts are supposed to represent an area fairly and accurately. Yeah, the Democrats did gerrymander. Now the Republicans are doing it. And again, that doesn't make it right for either side. And, and again, there nobody knows what they're going to do with this redistricting. One theory even is that they're going to completely split up the third district, just chop it in pieces where the Democrats won't have any representation in Washington. That remains to be seen. One thing they have to be careful with is Western Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky, both of which are Republican bastions, as you know, have lost considerable population. So some of these Republican districts are going to have to be consolidated. So the question is, which GOP representative or senator takes one from the team? They're going to have to be careful with that. Now, if the Democrats, I'm quite sure they will, immediately bring suit against this and hope that it would get relief in the state court and the Supreme Court or the federal courts. But then, you know, at the end of the end of the day, look at this Supreme Court. They're going to out, they're going to overrule Roe v. Wade. No question about it. They're going to rubber stamp right down the line. So there's not much the Democrats can do except get some good lawyers and hopefully fight this. But again, the only question is, how far are they going to go? Are they going to go for a complete nuclear option or are they going to let the Democrats have a little bit hidden? there? I don't know. But yes, a district, whether it be a state house, state senator, congressional district, is supposed to represent accurately and fairly the population. So you published a book titled Kentuckians in Pearl Harbor, Stories from the Day of Infamy, a chilling mm-hmm. account of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor as demonstrated by the op-ed published in the December 6, 2021 Courier Journal titled Remembering the Attack on Pearl Harbor 80 Years Later, penned by you, Barry Craig. Pearl Harbor took place during the Good War. Good War, as most Americans define it. Kentuckians and Americans can look back at World War II with some pride because it was a war won by Americans in our allies. But since World War II, U.S. military has yet to win a war, even though the U.S. military is currently engaged in six military conflicts. The ethics of wars waged against countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen are now in question. Historians like Stephen Kinzer, Jim Handy, and others have demonstrated that covert operations conducted by the CIA in countries like Guatemala, Indonesia, Nicaragua, were unnecessary and unjustifiable. So has U.S. foreign policy since World War II now headed in the wrong direction? Why? In a word, yes. And I used to talk about this in my American history classes. Uh, Let's go back to Guatemala in the 1950s. Guatemala was, uh, the United States didn't like this guy who his name was Jacobo Armenz Guzman. And so we just knocked him off. We didn't like Salvador Allende in Chile. We knocked him off too. Nicaragua, the Samosas, one of our favorite dictators. And I don't think American people were aware of just the kind of unsavory characters we were supporting throughout that period. And I would always challenge my students, name me one democracy, a real democracy that ever fell to communism. Well, let's go back to, to Russia, the czar not a Democrat. And the provisional government never really had a chance. China, a bunch of warlords. Cuba, Fulgencio Batista, our dictator. 
Yeah. Cuba was the playground for, for the, the, the mob, criminal elements. As I said, Nicaragua, the samosas. So to me, my wife always says, she's very wise. She's a very devout Presbyterian. She says, you know, that which is, is moral is almost always practical and right. Vietnam, for example, why didn't we encourage democracy in Vietnam? Basically, the Vietnam War was a civil war between a communist dictatorship in the North and a, and a fascist dictatorship in the South, which I would submit wasn't worth one drop of American blood. Korea, Syngman Rhee was a dictator in the South, communist yeah. dictator in the North. Yeah. yeah. Again, how many American lives were lost because of that? So to me, a much smarter foreign policy at a moral foreign policy would be to encourage democracy in these areas. And to me, to my matter thinking, what is, well, for example, down in Latin America, you had United Fruit and all these countries. Well, the interests of United Fruit, in my interest as a citizen, don't coincide. So we're supposed to be this big democracy, this beacon of democracy. Let's practice what we preach. And again, had we encouraged democracy in Cuba or in Nicaragua or in these other places in the Middle East, Wendell Ford, our late great senator, Wendell Ford, I, I used to, I, I've interviewed Wendell Ford several times when I was a reporter. And we were having a talk one time, just kind of shooting the bull after an interview. And the subject of the Middle East came up. He said, you know what? If they were exporting tangerines, we wouldn't be there. And I said, yep, you're right about that. It's all about oil. And to me, the interests of corporate America do not coincide with my interests. I'm working class. And so, I, again, going back, to that, and this is absolutely true. I think we have been completely off the rails on foreign policy. You know, going back to Vietnam in 1945, George Herring, who taught history at UK for years, wrote a tremendous book about Vietnam. In fact, it was the best single volume account of the Vietnam War, George Herring. And when the book starts out, here you have Ho Chi Minh. During, uh, and Ho Chi Minh, for example, Ho Chi Minh was, was when, when he read Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, 14 Points for Peace, one of them was Self-Determination of Nations. Wow. Ho Chi Minh thought, that's great. So the American president is standing for freedom for, uh, for my Indonesia. Well, no, we were talking about self-determination for white countries in Europe. And we pushed him away. In 1945, Ho Chi Minh wanted to become friends of the United States. He, they, when he declaimed the Republic of Vietnam, there were American military people there. And, and, and they played the, 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 the Viet Minh band, played the Star Spangled Banner. And he said, I look forward to years of happy and, and, and peaceful relations, trade relations with the United States. But because it's monolithic, irrational fear of communism, no, he's a communist. And these CIA people, and they said, look, this guy is not a communist. He's a nationalist. But Truman didn't believe it. And so this falling domino theory came along. And once again, you know, the Russians, the Soviets, they didn't take over Italy or France or Belgium or Britain. Those are democracies. And so to me, American foreign policy since the Second World War has been totally wrongheaded. And we back these tyrants these days. And then we don't understand why they don't like us. Why, why do they not like, you know, you know one, of, one, of my, one of my really good friends from, from uh, Paducah, he's dead now, great guy. He had considerable wealth. And so he decided he would just go to Nicaragua himself. This was back during the, the Sandinista era. And so he was talking to people and he asked this one guy, he says, well, he says, what's interesting us and the Cubans? He said, well, the Cubans are coming in here and helping us. You Americans will come here and screw us. And I thought, hmm. And that's, and of course, here again, perception is reality. And that's the perception that these countries had. You know, we're, we were, this country was born in revolution. We revolted against an imperial power, won our independence. Why the hell do we not understand 
that people in Guatemala and Chile and, and all these other places, they're just doing what we did. Anyway, I digress. Study some history. But again, I, I, that, that American foreign policy has been such a tragedy, a travesty since the war. And, and the, this Middle Eastern thing, oh, man, it's just awful. And we get in there. You remember when Bush was at the mission accomplished? Oh, my God. The Greeks referred to that as hubris. So here we are embroiled in it. And this is the first time in, gosh, since we haven't been at war anywhere. It's been a continual war somewhere since World War II. But you're getting back to World War II. Uh, it's the only war we've ever fought in which the American people were, were united. And the thing about World War II that, that I think people really need to understand is we amateurs won that war. My dad was about to sign a contract, play minor league baseball. He joined the Navy. My father-in-law uh, worked in his, his family's store here in Arlington, Kentucky, where we live. And they went out and they defeated these professional German and Japanese armies, these militarist armies. They, they, these were ordinary guys. And when the war ended, my dad's the only dad, hey, if you stay in the Navy, we'll make a chief petty officer. He says, nope, I'm going to play baseball. And my father-in-law, who was a master sergeant, he said, I'm going back to work in my, my dad's store, my granddad's store. And it was. There was this unity. Now, again, let's not be naive. We sent a Jim Crow army off to World War II. In fact, in my Pearl Harbor book, which is limited to Kentuckians, I had a really hard time finding the African-Americans who were at Pearl Harbor from Kentucky. And that's because of the opportunities in the military were limited. The Marines would not take black volunteers. If you're in the Navy, uh, you can only serve as a cook or, or a, a, a messman on a ship. Combat positions, uh, no officers. And the Army, uh, African-Americans were truck drivers laborers. Look at all the, the story about the, the Tuskegee Airmen. They weren't even allowed to fly in combat. And it, it was very limited. I mean, that was a big issue, uh, obviously. So let's, let's be honest. Let's not say that this is totally correct. I mean, when we sent our troops overseas to fight the fascists and, and the Nazis and the Japanese imperialists, we had some pretty, pretty dirty skirts here at home. In fact, in my book, there's an incident uh, about uh, in Louisville, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want people to buy my book. You know, that's the thing about books. You never know how much to tell. You, you, well, I'm not going to buy the book. Hell, he told the whole thing. So anyway, but uh, yes, yes, it, it was. It was a war. It, it, if, if there ever was a just war, uh, well, you could also say the American Civil War because that war restored the Union and its slavery. But World War II in, in terms, I, I don't, uh, these other wars since, since 1945, is just it's been a national tragedy. So like you, Barry Craig, I grew up in the 1960s and the 1970s. In those days, politics didn't seem like that big a deal. My friends and relatives, they didn't care much about whether you were a Republican or a Democrat or independent. But now it seems that the country is deeply divided along political lines. Is it just me or have we become a country with deep political divisions? And those divisions have caused us to make different choices about who we respect. Who we associate with? What do you think? It's not you. It, it, it's the polarization in this country. Now, again, from a historical perspective, you've got to look back. There were other times in our history in which this country was polarized, no more so than the Civil War. That was a, not was just a political disagreement. That became a military disagreement. And, and by the way, the Civil War is the most lethal conflict this country ever fought until fairly recently. You get up all the dead from all of America's other wars, and it wouldn't equal the death toll in the Civil War. In Kentucky here, especially, 
it truly was a state of brother against brother, father against son, all the big family, the Breckenridges, the Clays, and all these families. There was terrific division. The Vietnam era was quite divisive. I mean, you had uh, little Joey and little Sally go off to college. They little little uh, little Joey's got a crew cut, a nice button-down shirt, and his hush puppies and his khaki pants. And Sally's got this nice dress with her basswoods and loafers and pearls and all that. They come home for, for Thanksgiving. Oh, my God. Joey hadn't cut his hair. Joey's got a beard. Joey's got a road clip around his neck. He's got a peace sign. And Sally's dressed like something. Got a peasant dress and all this stuff. And, and that, of course, made for some very interesting table uh, Christmas uh, or Thanksgiving uh, conversations over the Vietnam War. It was very divisive, very divisive. I mean, you had people burning draft cards. You had demonstrations. You know, uh, uh, America, love it or leave it was one bumper sticker. And the other one was back our boys in Canada, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. <clears throat> but that was very serious. Today, and, and again, I alluded to this earlier, we got through Vietnam and, and I, I knew we would. And this is different. I used to tell my students that the most important election in American history was in 1860, the presidential election. What was at stake here? The future of the Union. And Lincoln is elected, the South secedes, and the Civil War begins. We got some midterms coming up here in 2022. This will become the most important election in American history since the Civil War. The 2024 election will become even more critical. Now, if the Republicans retake the House and Senate next year, which according to the prognosticators, that will happen. In fact, I read something the other day getting back to uh, gerrymandering that if you just have gerrymandering alone, they'll retake the House based on that. you got these voter suppression laws, gerrymandering. So if the Republicans take the House and Senate back, the first thing the House is going to do is abolish the January 6th committee. That will cease to function. They will next proceed to impeach Joe Biden. Now, a lot of people think impeach means turned out of office. It doesn't. Impeachment is like an indictment. They will impeach Joe Biden. He will be sustained because the Republicans won't have a two-thirds majority in the Senate. It's 2024. If the Democrats come back and Biden is reelected or some of the Democrat, they will not recertify. They will not certify the election. And that's when the United States will be absolutely against the wall. That is when our democracy will be imperiled. I look around today and you, you talk about those two bills to censor education. There's a representative in Texas who wants to ban books. It's one short step from banning books to burning books. Loyalty oaths, you can see that. You know, Like I said, I was completely free to teach any way I wanted. That will go away. I, I really, and I think what, the, what vexes me about the media, and I've spent most of my life in the media, is to me, the media is not focusing on the elephant in the living room, and that's the fate of American democracy. What do you read about in the paper? People are mad about gas prices. Okay, they're high. People are mad about inflation. It's high. But for God's sake, it's not Weimar Germany when it took a whole wheelbarrow full of paper notes to buy a loaf of bread. What is at stake is what some of these Republicans want to do. And what really distresses me, I'll be 72 on December the 7th. I remember there were moderate, reasonable Republicans. You, you, you alluded to that there about people. John Sherman Cooper from Kentucky, Republican, a moderate. Marlo Cook, a, a reasonable conservative. Thurston Morton, a reasonable conservative. They're gone. They're gone. Uh, I heard the other day, I think it was it was on Joy Reid's program, one of my favorite shows on MSNBC. can't remember who it was. Some, it was some pundit, I forgot who it was, who said that uh, Kevin McCarthy is not the leader of the Republican Party in the House. Marjorie Taylor Greene is because they're dancing to her tune. 
And it's not just green. It's Bobert. It's Gomert. It's Gates. It's Massey. And I keep wondering, how much farther is this going to go? And you think, surely to God, they're going to hit a wall. It's going to be the end of it. I don't see that. And I, I would invite your readers to, to look at, if they haven't already, this Christmas card. So I hear you, Professor Craig. But let's go in a different direction just a minute sure. here. Absolutely. So, former Jimmy Carter believes that when you negotiate with an opponent, you address that opponent in a respectful manner. Mm-hmm. I get that. But here's my question. U.S. House of Representative Thomas Massey from Northern Kentucky recently posted a picture of his fan. They were all brandishing automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. The caption under the picture read, quote, Merry Christmas. P.S. Santa, please bring ammo, end quote. The picture was posted a few days after the Michigan high school Mm -hmm. shooting that took the lives of four students in the Oxford High School. Mm -hmm. That picture appeared in the Washington Post as well. Mm -hmm. In my mind, this photo demonstrates a total disrespect for the lives of those four students that lost their lives as a result of gun violence. It also demonstrates a disrespect for their families who now have to deal with the tragedy of this loss. Mm-hmm. How do we demonstrate respect for Thomas Massey, people like him, when he has shown such disrespect for others? Uh, that's an excellent question. The question is, I do, you can't respect this guy. In fact, I just worked on a column, which I submitted to Bruce Maples at Forward, Kentucky. That reminded me, uh, let me tell you, something. no one could top the Nazis when it came to perverting Christmas. Well, Thomas Massey has given a pretty good run for their money. The Nazis militarized Christmas. They, uh, uh, you know, kids, instead of, you know, instead of a little, little kid getting a teddy bear or electric train, they got toy guns. Well, Massey, those are real guns. I'm pretty sure that that gun in Massey's lap is an M60 machine gun. That's a heavy machine gun used with the military. All those other weapons, this woman who I guess is his wife is holding a Tommy gun, you know, Al Capone's favorite weapon. Uh, the others are holding uh, AR-15s with the military version of M-16s. Now, I was taught in Sunday school class that Jesus preached peace over war, love over hate. I don't recall in the Bible Jesus packing a sword, a knife, a club, bow and arrows, or any other kind of weapon. So here you have this, and right there in front of the Christmas tree, you've got these people holding weapons. Now. Good old John Yarmouth, did you read what he tweeted? He wanted to, to assure the country that not, not everybody in Kentucky is an asshole. That's what he tweeted. And I thought that was so well put. This is perverse beyond belief. Now, why does this guy do that? I talked to Bill Straw, one of my buddies who's a retired journalist, who says that Massey thinks this is funny. It's his perverse sense of humor. He described Massey as a publicity pig, that he thinks this is amusing. And it's just, it, he just says it just shows what a soulless man he is. But the fact that this has been, is going on, is just, it's just unbelievable. You know, Kentucky doesn't have a particularly good reputation. And a lot of that, a lot of that is self-inflicted. Let, let's be honest. I used to joke and tell my students that, uh, you know, in Kentucky, the attitude is we wouldn't kill you unless we just, so we just had to kill you, unless you needed killing. Uh, but you think about violence in Kentucky. You think about feuding in Kentucky. You think about lynching, all, all this awful stuff that went on here. And now you get to, to this guy who's putting guns. And, and something about Massey, I, so I, I call, after Massey did this, I called him my friends down in County, Fulton County. He's a retired Army colonel, a paratrooper, Vietnam vet. 
And I said, what do you think of this? And he said, this, this phony patriotism, it just makes me sick. He said, this disrespects all of my friends and classmates who were killed in the Vietnam War. Uh, Massey, uh, of course, uh, by the way, do, do you know if Massey ever served in the military? He did no, not. No, he did no, not. He did not. So here you got this guy. And I looked this up. Massey turned 20 years old right before the first Gulf War, which lasted for how many decades? Massey had ample opportunity to put on a uniform, to go over there, to have a real military gun and shoot it at real enemies. Of course, they shot back. That was another interesting part of that. So here you got this guy that glorifies war. He's posed all these weapons, but it didn't move him to put on a uniform and go and fight. Massey is what's called a chicken hawk. Back during the Vietnam era, or just after Vietnam, this guy who was a Vietnam vet and published the New Hampshire Gazette put out what's called the Chicken Hawk Database. And there are all these older, flag-waving, saber-rattling Republicans who did their dead-level best to avoid the Vietnam War. Now, who were some of the names on there? Well, there was Rush Limbaugh, who had a cyst on his tailbone. That's how he got out of Vietnam. You've got Lee Greenwood, who didn't go to Vietnam. George W. Bush. What did George Bush do? Well, he joined the Texas Air National Guard. Now, listen, when you're my age, you know, during the Vietnam era, if you get in the Guard or the Reserve, you weren't going. So Bush flew the friendly skies of Texas rather than the unfriendly skies of North Vietnam. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. All these people that avoided the war in Vietnam. There's a fellow, uh, 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 Max Cleland, who was a senator from Georgia, stepped on a landmine in Vietnam, blew both of his legs and one of his arms off. And this Republican beat him, called him unpatriotic. And this guy never served. So Massey's on that list. And so, the, by the way, is Matt Gates. So all these other, these, these right-wing flag-waving saber-rattlers at least have the decency when you're older and you avoided a war to not be sending young people off to war. George McGovern says, I'm tired of old men dreaming up wars for young men to fight in. And he had some, he, George, George McGovern had standing, as I said. He was an old bomber pilot from World War II. And so is Howard Zinn, bombardier. So Massey is sickening. He is, he, 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 is, he is an example of the sickness that plagues this country. But you know, how many Republicans have denounced him? Haven't heard of any. You would think that Mitch McConnell would denounce him. You would think that, that Kevin McCarthy would denounce him. But it's crickets so far from them about that. And the sad thing about the Republican Party, you, you've got those anti-Trumpers, never-Trumpers. Well, they don't represent the party anymore. They don't. And even you, you, I know you've read that uh, uh, Cheney, Liz Cheney, they've read her out of the Wyoming Republican Party. Liz Cheney is right wing down the line. I mean, the only thing she's got, as far as I'm concerned, going for her is she doesn't like Trump, but she's a right winger right down the line. And they threw her out. But one thing, too, is interesting about, about the Republicans. I was talking to one of my old history professors, and I was talking about that, about revolutions tend to turn on each other. Uh, you look, go back to the Bolshevik Revolution when Stalin kills off the old Bolsheviks. Robespierre winds up on the guillotine. And so Hitler turns on the brown shirts, Ernst Röhm kills. And so these Republicans, in their zeal to prove their fealty to Trump, they're going to start turning on each other. You mark my words. Now, the question is, will it be too late? But what really concerns me, and I've been saying for years, that the generation of my son, uh, he, Barry is, is a 20, uh, I'm born 93 and 11, he's 28. That generation does not buy into this crap these Republicans are putting out. 
they don't go in for this racism, this bigotry, this sexism, this homophobia, all this stuff. They, they, none of that crap. Watch and they the, the idea that this hypocritical religion I call the Jesus loves you but he can't stand you variety. I think I sent you a link to that song. But the question is now to me is will we have a democracy left for them to uh, to take over? And then and this is the question that that really floored my old prof. That's fun you can floor an old prof. And I said you in World War II. How did we stop Hitler and Mussolini and the Japanese warlords? Military force, we invaded them. Who's going to invade our country and save us? Now think about that. If this okay. country goes full on authoritarian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got time for one more question here. We're actually sure. we're kind of out of time, but let me ask you this. Sure. You are, you are a producer of Barry Craig's notebook. It airs on a uh, Paducah TV station. It's Tell going to be about yeah. yeah, go ahead. Tell us go about ahead. that program. Yes, I, I started doing that when I actually... <laughs> I had, I'm an old newspaper reporter, but I walked into our TV studio one time at, on campus and the, the guy said, uh, we got this interview coming up. You want to do it? And I said, yeah. And I did it. And I started, it was called Barry Craig's Notebook. And I did it for several years. I also had a second program called the Union Label, in which I would interview union leaders from across the state. When I retired, I gave up both the shows, but I am in the process of reestablishing at least the Union Label and, and maybe the other one as well. I enjoy that. I'm an old reporter. And, and I learned a long time ago, you can learn a lot from listening and asking the right questions. And my wife always accused me. She says, you know, you pontificate too much. I said, it goes to the territory. She says, you're in your, she says, you're in your lecture mode again. I said, sorry, I did it for 24 years, but uh, it's local programming. I, I would what, like what you're doing. This is great stuff. It gives people an opportunity that, to, to talk, to get out there. And you never know who listens to it. You never know. You just never know. I did a program one time on the, it is now legal to make whiskey. You being from your Trig County roots, the moonshine roots, that's that's moonshine Mecca in Western Kentucky. It's now legal. The law has changed to where you can actually make whiskey at home. And I did a story about a guy who actually made stills to sell to people. Man, that thing got like a quarter of a million views. So you never know who's listening to this and who's looking at this stuff. So I would encourage anybody, if you live in an area, if you've got cable, local cable TV, Wayne's World, you know, to get on there and, and start a program like that. And it's a lot of fun. But I, you, you've inspired me today. I'm going to call the studio today and get set up before the first of the year or at, 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 at the latest in January. Again, it's, it's, it, it's an alternative view. Okay, so folks, we're we're out of time. Our conversation today has been with author and historian Barry Craig. We want to thank Barry Craig for joining us here on Solution to Balance. We also want to thank our listeners, our audience, for tuning in to WFMP Radio. Listeners, you can listen to Solution to Balance live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solution to Balance airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring author Barry Craig will be placed in our archives December 15th, 2021. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features author Barry Craig. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Barry Craig, you can reach us at the following email address, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Wishing you and yours a safe and peaceful holiday season. Thanks for listening.